Amen. Good morning, church. How's everybody doing today? Doing okay? Surviving? One step at a time? It's good. Awesome. Well, I'm super glad you guys are here this morning. Um, it is... Uh, it's always an honor when I get to get up here and, and preach the word, and so I'm, I'm really grateful to, to be doing that. So uh, we have been in a series in the book of Romans... And uh, we've been talking about this idea of Christian living. What does it mean? You know, Paul kind of turns a corner in Romans 12, and he talk, goes from talking about sort of the essence of the gospel and what it is to what does it mean for us to live as Christians in the world in response to that. And so as I was kind of like thinking about this passage and as I was, you know, doing some research and trying to figure out what exactly I was going to say about it, I realized that uh, one of the things that we really love as human beings are revenge stories. Am I right? Like, one of the things that we love is, like, we, we kind of, like, you know, if somebody gets what's coming to them, you know, a bad guy gets, gets their, their comeuppance, their just desserts. And I started thinking about, you know, what, it, what does it mean for us to kind of, like, consume these revenge stories and what is this, what is this all about? And I thought about, uh, thought about my honeymoon, and not about in the sense of, like, that I got revenge on Maria or whatever. But like, uh, so when we got married, we went and we flew to Florida and we spent a week in Daytona Beach and then we got on a cruise ship and we spent a week on a cruise ship and it was awesome. But while we were in Florida at our little like Airbnb, we decided one day we're like, oh, let's watch a movie. Let's figure it out. You know, and, it, and, and I discovered that Maria had never seen the movie Kill Bill. And I was like, oh, we got to watch Kill Bill. It's one, of the, it's one of my favorites. So we got to watch Kill Bill. And, I, and so I was kind of thinking about this movie, and here it is. If you're not familiar, uh, Uma Thurman is uh, basically uh, an assassin. And she, uh, we actually don't know the main character's name until the very end of the second movie, which is a whole thing. But um, anyway, uh, she goes on this killing spree to get back at a bunch of people who are also assassins who plotted to kill her and her unborn child. So like it becomes this whole thing. She gets revenge. And the leader of the group of people who uh, is like, you know, who she's going after, his name is Bill. So we're going to kill Bill, right? Okay, so cool. This is a revenge story. Maybe this says more about my like sanctification than I need to, but it's one of my favorite movies of all time. Okay, moving on. Take it. All right, we've seen this one, right? Liam Neeson uses his very special set of skills with his, like, really awesome American accent to go after this group of people that, like, uh, this group of human traffickers that take his daughter while she's on vacation. Um, and, you know, he goes on a killing spree and does this whole thing, right? These people get what's coming to them, and I don't know, we love it. It's a great movie. Okay, next one. John Wick. Anybody seen this one? Raise your hand. Yes, good. Okay, cool. All right, good. Uh, so John Wick, this is one of the ones that film critics are going to be talking about 50 years from now and thinking that was a, a highlight moment for action and fight choreography in film, period. Uh, but the basic gist of the story of this one it's very sad, actually. Keanu Reeves' character, his wife passes away. One of the last things she does before she passes away is she gifts him a dog. And this dog is a puppy. And then this gang comes to his house, breaks in, kills his dog that was the gift from his, from his uh, deceased wife. And he's like, well, I'm going to go kill everybody. So that's what he does. Um, and uh, it's, anyway, it's a, great, it's a great revenge story. It's, you know, some great action, you know, whatever. Okay, last but not least... Oh, no, there's one more after this one. Ocean's Eleven, right? We know this one. This is a revenge story. This was actually a remake of a film that was from the 60s, but 
Um, anyway, George Clooney's character steals $150 million from a guy because he's dating his ex-wife. And it's like this whole, like, he's just going to go get him, and it's a whole thing. But the last one is this one, Lion King. Lion King is a revenge story, believe it or not, right? You know? Yeah, uh-huh. So Simba, right? Simba is the, the heir to the throne of Pride Rock, and his dad, Mufasa, is like, you know, this amazing ruler. James Earl Jones, yes, right? Um, and Scar, his uncle, right, kills Mufasa, takes the throne. This is basically the story of Hamlet, too. And then also, um, so, so Simba goes and lives in the wilderness for a while and just Hakuna Matata and all that kind of stuff. But then he shows back up and Scar gets what's coming to him. He, you know, he, he takes back over. He vindicates himself and writes all these wrongs. And it's a good, it's a, it, we just like, we love that story, right? And here's what I want to propose today is that that desire in our hearts, the desire for justice, the desire for bad people to get what's coming to them, the desire for good to triumph over evil, that is something that actually is really deeply embedded within us because it's a good thing. It's a good thing that we want justice in the world. But there's a difference between justice and revenge. So that desire for justice in our heart, that's actually part of the image of God in us. God made us in his image, right? And God, being a God of justice, being the one who gets to perfectly determine whether or not something is just and right and good, has placed within us a desire to put the world right. We know that there's something wrong with the world we live in. And we want to put it right. And when we are wounded, when somebody attacks us, when we are wronged in some way, we want to make it right. We want to bring some justice to that situation. And I would argue that that desire, the desire for justice, is a good thing. But where it gets twisted, where it gets marred, where it gets affected by the fact that we are fallen creatures who live in a fallen world, is our desire, it's not our desire for justice, but it is in the way that we carry justice out. It's in the way that we go after it. It's in the way that we attack others in order to get what's ours. So think about this. I mean, like, I think we have moments like this in our, in our lives every single day where we feel like somebody needs to get what's coming to them, right? Maybe it's not something as like extreme as any of these examples, right? But, you know, if somebody, for example, like for me, if somebody's like tailgating me really bad, I'm doing the speed limit or like maybe three miles an hour below the speed limit because I'm going to get, they're going to get what's coming to them, right? If you're going to be mean to me, I'm going to be mean to you. Um, or like, let's say just, you know, uh, somebody cuts you off on the freeway and you're like, ah, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to cut them off instead. And then they're going to feel how I feel. I'm going to make them feel the same way, the violation that I feel. Maybe it's a situation where like a coworker or something or, or a boss or someone at work is taking credit for something that you have done. And, you've, and that's, that's wrong, right? That feels wrong to you because it is. There's something that is intrinsically not okay about someone like taking credit for your hard work. Maybe you have a situation where a friend tells you something in confidence or, or you tell a friend something in confidence and then they go and they share it with their small group as a prayer request or something, right? And you're like, wait a minute, 
like, y'all, we should really pray. We should really pray for her. She's got a bunch of stuff going on. This is an issue. It comes veiled in this, like, Christian sort of thing, which is, you know, anyway, that's a whole other issue. But maybe something like that has happened and you feel violated and there's a problem with that, right? Everybody knows your stuff now. Maybe it's a family member who insults you over an opinion that you hold, or maybe it's a parent who makes you feel like you're unwanted, unloved, or abandoned. Maybe it's a child who, uh, who has basically cut you out of their life and they don't want anything to do with you anymore. That feels wrong. There's something about that that we know is not right. And I, like I said, the, the desire for justice, the desire to make that wrong right is a good thing. It comes from the image of God within us. But our methods for achieving justice need to be shaped and molded by the message of the gospel. So what do, what, what do we do? Like, what, what happens here? What, what, what does Paul have to say about this in this passage? He has some instructions for us as we go through this passage in Romans. So if you have your Bible with you, you can open up to Romans 12. We're going to be starting in verse 17. It'll also be up on the screen. Uh, I'm reading out of the ESV version this morning. So here's what he says. Here's what Paul says. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not become, or do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So as Paul is writing this passage to us, we kind of like, are, are given some instructions that are difficult for us to understand and it's difficult for us to do. But here's the bottom line. The bottom line is we break cycles of evil by overcoming them with good. Whenever anybody wrongs us in our life, whenever something happens where we are offended against, somebody does something that breaks and violates us, there's a, an immediately a choice that we have in that moment. And that choice is whether we're going to continue the cycle of evil by repaying that person evil for evil, or if we're going to break that cycle of evil by repaying that with good. And we're going to break it off, and it's going to be done. So Paul says, don't, don't repay anybody evil for evil. Now, here's the thing, right? That is, that's a really difficult pill to swallow. When Paul says, repay no one evil for evil, what do you mean no one? Well, no one. You mean, you, mean, you mean no one, right, Paul? Yeah, Paul means no one. Absolutely. There aren't any exceptions. He doesn't just, and he doesn't just leave it there either. Paul, what's, what's going to happen in this passage is Paul takes this, like, this idea of I'm not going to repay someone evil for evil. I'm going to withhold my, like, my, my vindication. He moves it from that to I'm actually going to do something positive towards this person. So he kind of ratchets up the stakes with every little passing moment in this passage. So then he goes on and he says, 
but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. So we're not even, we're not even just not doing bad. We're actually doing something good, honorable, right towards this person. Now, what does Paul mean here when he says, do what is honorable in the sight of all? If you do something that's honorable in someone's sight, it means that, you know, it's an expression that means that you do something that they think is honorable. It's honorable in my sight. I think that this is a good thing if this is honorable in my sight. Now, in this passage, we're sort of talking about relationships within the church, and we're talking about relationships outside of the church as well. So is Paul saying that we're going to allow people who don't follow Jesus to determine what is or isn't honorable kind of a behavior for us to, uh, to, to do towards them? And the answer is yes and no at the same time, because there's a limitation. The limitation is this word honorable. What is honorable? Some, some of your translations will say good. What is good? And the way that we determine what is good to do to another person is how we walk through and how we understand what the scriptures tell us is good. So there is a limitation there. It's not just a free-for-all. If anybody says, like, you know what would really honor me? What would really honor me if you would go over there and kill that guy? Okay, that, that's a problem, right? We're not going to do that. Um, it would really honor me if you would go over here and slander that person in the public sphere and, and really just, like you know, nail them to the wall over there. No, right? What is, what is good? What is honorable? What is right? That is what we are trying to do. But we're supposed to kind of like determine and figure out what are those things that people are actually going to receive as honor to them? That's an interesting thing, and it requires that we know a little something about what these people are thinking about. It requires that we have a relationship with them. We should do those things that we know are good, that we know are right and honorable according to the standard of the way of Jesus, but these things should also be recognized by the people that we're trying to honor. So we're looking, uh, there's kind of like a Venn diagram sort of an idea, right? We have like honorable stuff over here, and we have stuff that like people think is good for them and honorable, and right in the middle, right, we have this little spot, and that's the stuff that we should be doing. We should be giving thought to what is in that little center part portion of that Venn diagram. So then he continues this straight of thought, and I think that this is really interesting, and I, I, this is one of, my, one of my favorite verses actually in this whole passage because Paul recognizes reality. He's not giving us a command that's too much, He's not giving us a command that's unreasonable. What he's do, and he recognizes that there's something that uh, is uh, not quite right in the world, and here's how we're going to deal with it. So he says this, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So there's a couple of things that this implies, right? One is that it's not always possible to live peaceably with someone. It's not always possible. Sometimes it is impossible to be at peace with someone. Because to be at peace with another person requires both parties to move together and make peace. And there are times when no matter what you do, no matter what you say, no matter how you honor that person, no matter how much you try, no matter how much you pray, that person's will is pushed against you in such a way that they will not reconcile with you they will not allow you to be at peace with them. 
So that's why it's so important, this, this, this portion where he says, if it's possible, so we have to determine whether or not it's possible at all, and then, so far as it depends on you, so far as it depends on you. So we are to make every effort. If it depends on me, I need to do it. But that's why, and this is like one of these things that, we, we, uh, that, I've, that I've sort of like had as part of my life that's been really helpful for me, and that's the concept of your box versus their box. As far as it depends on you means that I take care of whatever's in my box, metaphorically speaking how I act, how I speak, how I think toward that person, how I pray, the way that I try and honor them, the way that I don't try and tear them down in front of others. That's the stuff that's in my box, my attitude towards that person, my ability to speak well of the good things about their character, even if there are other pieces about them that really rub me the wrong way. That's what's in my box, right? You know what's in their box? All that same stuff, but for them, how they act towards you how they respond to you, whether or not they even want to be your friend anymore, whether or not they want to be part of your life, how they're going to respond to you emotionally, whether or not they're going to shut you down or make you feel inferior or whatever. That's their box. So what Paul is saying here is that we need to be responsible for what we're responsible for, and they need to be responsible for what they're responsible for. And as far as it depends on us, we live at peace with everyone. We do everything we can, but there's a moment in time where sometimes we just have to acknowledge that that's in their box, and we have to be okay with it. Now, this is something also that I, uh, we're talking about a, a forgiveness uh, versus like a restoration of relationship. I can forgive a person because that's a largely internal thing, it's internal and it's vertical. It's between me and the Lord and it's between me and my emotions and how I was wounded and what happened to me and how do I like, how I, I, can, I can forgive that person somehow. I can stop holding them accountable for whatever it is that they've done to me, but that's a largely internal reality. Restoration of relationship in that moment requires that that person comes to you who has wronged you and actually wants to be part of that wants to ask for your forgiveness, wants to repent of what they have done. And there are cases where sometimes you can forgive a person and you can do what's honorable and right to them, but because of how they have interacted with you or because of the way that the, the world has like, gotten into their heads or whatever, they are not going to be part of that relationship. Making peace requires two parties. So I think that this passage is more about this like internal reality in a lot of ways. We're talking about forgiveness of another, honoring another, and that's what depends on me, right? That's what depends on me. That's what's in my box. But the bottom line of all of this is that regardless of the situation, regardless of if this is just a me and forgiveness sort of situation or if it's a me and this person like actually reconciling and figuring out and working it all out together, regardless of how it all works out, we don't get the option of taking vengeance. We don't get the option of taking vengeance. Because remember how I was talking about this cycle. We have this choice to make. We can perpetuate evil by taking vengeance. We can further that cycle and make it continue, or we can cut it off right there. 
It's, it's cliche, but it's true. Two wrongs don't make a right. They just make a bigger wrong. They don't make a right. And there's some immense wisdom in that. So we're not allowed to take vengeance. And here's what Paul has to say. He says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Believe it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Now, sometimes I think that there's this idea um, where if we, like, if someone wrongs us in some way, if they offend against us, if they do something that's, that's wicked to me, that if I do nothing, if I don't attempt to gain justice for myself, if I don't retaliate in some way, even within sort of like the boundaries of, of being, I don't know, being courteous or something like that, if I don't in some way try and regain face in that person's life or in the people around me, then I have just rolled over and become a doormat. I've done nothing. And I would like to propose that no, Rolling over, it's not, it's not rolling over and doing nothing. Non-retaliation isn't giving up or doing nothing. It's actually a step of faith that God will eventually make all things right and his justice will prevail. We're not just rolling over and doing nothing. We're actually doing something radical, which is that we are taking a step toward God and believing him who he says he is. So for a lot of us, retaliation, retaliation is a way of like regaining a sense of control of the situation that maybe something's been done to you that you find repulsive or whatever. And so a lot of us, we, we might like feel like there's a way that we can regain control somehow in this situation. We can become defensive and we can sort of say, well, here are all the reasons why I did what I did, or here are all the reasons why you're wrong. We can just like cancel people out of our lives and be like, I'm done with you. We can exclude people from our circles of relationships. We can become sarcastic or passive aggressive or withholding or bitter or manipulative or some of these things. Maybe we badmouth this person in front of other people. We talk behind their back and we say, actually, this person is a horrible, horrible person and they don't deserve your respect. Maybe uh, we, we dig up dirt on that person and use it as a weapon to silence them or make them stop whatever they're doing. And when we do this, if we do this, we have perpetuated the cycle of evil that has begun in our life. We perpetuated the cycle of evil. Vengeance doesn't work. So a New Testament scholar, James Dunn, he wrote a great commentary on the book of Romans. Here's what he has to say about vengeance. He has, vengeance in human hands is a treacherous commodity which destroys the good it is meant to defend and must, perforce, be left to God alone. In other words, vengeance is like, um, vengeance is like a hand grenade. <laughs> I, could like, I could throw it into a room, right? And it's going to make a huge mess. And it's not going to achieve what I want it to achieve necessarily. It just kind of like blows everything up and creates more problems than it solves. So we don't actually achieve true justice if we take vengeance. We don't actually cancel out the evil. We don't make it 
less evil somehow. We actually perpetuate it. We establish our own ideas of dominance, of justice. We establish our own preferences for how a relationship is supposed to work and the power dynamics that exist in those relationships. But as Christians, we're exhorted, we're commanded to take a more long-term view of what justice actually is. We want justice and vengeance in the short term, but God is thinking in the long term, and he is going to right every wrong. He is going to make everything right. As C.S. Lewis says, at the end of all things, every bad thing comes untrue. That's like what God is, in, is, is moving toward in his, in his plan for the world. So instead of thinking that not getting payback or uh, for being wronged is like somehow admitting defeat or rolling over or becoming a doormat, I want to invite us together to think of non-retaliation as a bold, radical step of faith, faith in God's justice, faith in God's character and faithfulness, that he is indeed a just God, and that he will indeed one day right every wrong and dry every tear. And faith that, yes, the wheels of God's justice turn slowly, but they are turning. They are moving. And the world is bent towards justice at the end of all things when God returns to right every wrong. So then Paul ups the ante even more. He's like, not even, not even are you supposed to do honorable things to this person and not take retaliation and leave it to God and have faith and stuff, but then he makes it very practical. He gets on the ground with us, and he says this, to the contrary. So instead of taking vengeance, we leave it to God, and instead of taking vengeance, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. Or, yeah, if he is thirsty, Give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Now, Paul actually quotes here from the book of Proverbs, and he makes this idea super practical for us. It's really personal. Notice how these acts of like feeding a hungry person or giving something to drink to a thirsty person, that's something that happens in a sort of a one-on-one relationship. It's, it, it's, an, it's a close thing. Paul's not talking about someone who's way out there in the ether. He's not talking about someone who's so far away that we have no real connection to them. He's not talking about some troll that we met on the internet. He's talking about a person that we have had some kind of relationship with, and that relationship is broken, but as the way of of stopping the cycle of evil that exists in our relationship with that person, we do good to them. We meet their needs. We give them something to eat. We give them something to drink. And by so doing this, we heap burning coals on their heads. Now this, I don't know about you, but when I read this, I think that's a very negative image, right? (laughs) Like, That sounds really uh, painful and uncomfortable and not like something I would ever want to do is have burning coals heaped on my head. Um, And the the reality of the situation is that the meaning of this passage is somewhat debated among scholars, both when they're talking about it in the context of Proverbs and also when they're talking about how Paul is using it in Romans. So there's like all kinds of stuff that's going around. But there are some that would say that heaping coals on someone's head 
is a form of shaming them. It's a metaphor for shaming them somehow. Your conduct toward them has done something good when they have done something evil to you, and so when you do something good to them, they feel ashamed of themselves and then maybe change the behavior or their thoughts or their actions. Now, if you ask me, that seems a little bit, um, that seems a little bit like uh, vengeance, but with an extra step. So if Paul is saying we can't take vengeance, but then he says you're going to heat burning coals on this person's head, I don't know that he's talking out of both sides of his mouth in that sense. I don't know that he's out of one side of his mouth saying don't take vengeance, but also if you do good to this person, it's going to be taking vengeance on them, elbow, elbow. Like I don't think that that's what Paul is up to. Now, it also could be, um, some people will actually think that heaping burning coals on your head, some Old Testament scholars think that this is actually a reference to an ancient Egyptian ritual where when you go and you repent to someone, when you pay penance, you put a dish on your head and you would heap burning coals into it and come to that person as a way to show how sorry you are for what you have done. Um, and that's possible. There, you know, Paul might have been familiar with that. But Here's the thing, regardless of sort of like the specifics of what this means, there's something about heaping burning coals on someone's head that is going to drive them in some way towards a more positive way of living in the world. And I don't know exactly what that means. I don't know exactly what that looks like, but that's part, sometimes what we encounter when we read the Bible. Um, there's this like moment that happens when we do something good to someone who has wronged us or something kind of clicks on in their minds sometimes, and they realize, they come to a realization that they need to change their ways or their attitude toward you. And I think that something along those lines is what Paul is getting at here. It's something positive. He's, he's saying, if we do these things, if we act kindly towards people who are unkind to us, something affects them in a way that makes them see God more clearly and see the character of Jesus more clearly. Now, the point of the whole passage, and I think that Paul kind of wraps it all up right here, he says this. He says, don't be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. This word overcome is often used in like a military context. So like, when a group of soldiers would surround and attack and overwhelm an enemy force, like that's this idea of like overcoming, like a, basically like a wave breaking. You know, you overcome this, this group. You, you fight it to the death, basically. You're, you're beaten by it. And if we perpetuate evil in our lives, if we continue those cycles when we're presented with that choice, we get overcome by evil. Evil wins in that situation. But if we overcome evil with good, if we meet evil in our lives with a kind of force that can overwhelm it, there's something good that comes out of that. That's what Paul is getting at. We can break cycles of evil in our life by overcoming them with good. And Christians, followers of Jesus, we're supposed to be people who are marked with the kind of kindness and generosity toward others that is not dependent on how they treat us. Our love is not conditional. Our love is not conditional. Whenever someone wrongs you or me, we have a choice to make. And we can either continue evil and let it fester and spread like a disease, 
Or we can cut it off at the source by offering kindness, forgiveness, and honorable behavior instead. And Paul takes this idea, this like way of living, this Christian ethic, Paul takes this directly from the life and teachings of Jesus. This is how Jesus lived his life. His response to evil and violence toward himself was not to just get revenge. In fact, he, as people were shouting from the crowds, crucify him, crucify him, he didn't open his mouth. He, he absorbed it. As people were driving nails into his hands and his feet, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Like, this is the kind of stuff that, that Jesus did in his life, and Paul was very aware of this. And then later on, after Jesus died and then rose again from the grave, his early followers were known for doing this stuff too. I think of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. Stephen, who is this person who was so, like, so believed in the message of the gospel that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is who he says he is, that he allowed himself to be stoned to death before everybody. And as he was dying, he ask God to not hold these sins, these acts against these people. That's, that's the kind of love that can actually affect people's lives and change them. And I have to believe, I, I'd like to think, because the book of Acts tells us at the very beginning of chapter 8 that Saul was present when Stephen was executed. He probably heard Stephen shout out those words to God as he breathed his last breath. And I think that Paul was probably thinking about Stephen when he's writing stuff like this. The kind of kindness that we show towards others, the kind of forgiveness, the kind of honor that we show to them by praying to God that he would forgive them and that he would bless them and he would not hold their sins against them, that's the kind of stuff that changes people's lives. Paul, I think, recognized that. And maybe some of us are here and we're thinking, man, there's like some, some stuff that people have done to me that is just, it's just too much. Like, there's no, there's no way. This wound is too deep. This, this, this thing that has been done to me is too wicked. And I would like to start into that conversation by, by saying that the Overcoming evil with good starts with recognizing the gospel for yourself. And that's not to say that you are somehow like to blame for the wickedness that has happened to you. But what I mean is that as we get more and more familiar with the fact of the gospel in our own lives, the way that God has acted in kindness and humility toward us and lifted us up and honored us, even though we were his enemies... We were enemies of God by nature, right? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God extended his love toward us even when we had offended him so terribly deeply. And God has poured his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, says Romans 5. That same love that raised Christ from the dead, that same 
love that pursues people, that same love that tells a crucified thief who's dying that he's going to be with you one day in, right before the end of the day in, in paradise. The same love that compels a father to run toward his son who has squandered his inheritance on booze and prostitutes and wild living and gambling and all this kind of stuff, and you run towards this person, and the father says, put the best robe on him. Hurry up, do it. That's the kind of love that God has for you and for me. The Holy Spirit pours that love into our hearts so that we can acknowledge it and pour it out towards others. But it's still hard. It's still difficult. I, I think, as I kind of have been working through this passage, this is probably the most difficult portion of the Christian ethic for us to do. I think it really is. You mean, I, don't, I do not get the option of paying that person back for what they have done to me or someone that I love. That's a tough pill to swallow. You mean I have to forgive that person and offer forgiveness to them? Yeah. But here's the encouraging thing, and here's something that I think I want to leave us with today is one that is forgiveness, and this kind of like ethic doesn't happen overnight. It's an often painful process that takes time. It's, it's a process. So <clears throat> back when I was in seminary, we were talking about this very concept, the idea of forgiving people who have wronged you very deeply. And my professor in my spiritual formation class, she had later on in her life gone and gotten a PhD and, you know, was like working through and was teaching now. But when she started her career, she was a trauma nurse. So she was working in a hospital. And um, one of the things that she, the example that she used of what this process of forgiveness looks like is like when you are in some kind of accident and you have a very deep wound physically in your body. And one of the things that seems, I mean, if you're, if you're not familiar with the medical like world, which I'm definitely not, uh, and I really had a great time looking up some of the illustrations of what I'm about to uh, tell you about, but uh, I'm not going to show you any of those things. It's fine. Um, but um, <clears throat> one of the things that happens is it, we like sort of instinctively would just want to close that wound up, right? We want to close it up. You have a big gaping wound in your chest or whatever. We want to close it up, stop the bleeding, and then just kind of like let it heal, right? Like put the pressure on it and do our thing, right? There's a problem with that. Now, this is a wound, Let's pretend it's a wound, okay? This is not my attempt at making the Weezer logo. It is uh, a wound. Um, so there's your skin, right? And then there's this big deep gash or, you know, puncture wound or something like that that happens in your, in your body, all right? Now, I, we could just cover this over and put a Band-Aid over it and be like, yes, this is, you know, I forgive that person. It's fine. You know, no problem, right? I just never have to, th I'm never going to think about it again or whatever it is, right? We could cover it over, but here's what happens is when that happens, when we just cover it over at the top, it will, it will scab over at the top, but then everything underneath will fester. It won't be ready to heal. And it can get infected and form a horrible abscess and an infection that could actually kill you. Like, that'll take you down. It's not good. So instead, when someone comes in with a wound like this, they assess it and they decide, okay, I think we need to pack this wound. And so what they do is they take sterile strips of gauze and they stuff it into the wound 
which sounds really barbaric, but that is what happens. They stuff it all in there, and they leave the ends poking out, and then every few hours, they have to pull all of the old gauze out, which is terribly painful, and they have to put fresh stuff in. But what happens when we do that, when we do this painful, terrible, awful, gory process of packing a wound and unpacking it and packing it and unpacking it, is that the wound begins to fill in from the bottom up. It heals when it's ready. It heals over time as a process. It begins to close up on its own without having all of the nasty stuff that happens when we close off a wound too early. And eventually, it gets restored. And I think that forgiveness is a lot like that, of something that's so deep and terrible. We have to pack that wound. We can't just sort of like glaze over it. We have to pack that and then unpack it with Jesus, with a community that we trust. And it's ugly, and it's hard, and it takes time, and it's a process. And there's risk to it, and there's pain. But that is what we're called to do. This is part of the Christian life that we get to pack and then unpack. It goes step by step. So my encouragement to us this morning is if you're sitting here and you're like, you're feeling like that, um, that there's something that has happened to you that you just feel that you, it's too much. It's too deep. I can't just sort of like call this, you know, call this good one and done. Is that my, my encouragement is to just take, a, take one step. Even if that step's a baby step, because here's the thing, baby steps are still steps, am I right? Baby steps are still steps. We take baby steps towards this. Maybe the first step for you is getting deeply, intimately aware of the way that the gospel has gotten a hold of your life. Maybe that's the first thing for you. Or maybe you have that awareness, and maybe it needs to just constantly be renewed but then we move forward and we, maybe it's as simple and also as difficult as saying a prayer for the person who wounded you. And this is not the kind of prayer that's like, oh God, would you change them? Oh God, would you make them hurt the way that I hurt? Oh God, would you do this thing to them? This is not the David, you know, in the Psalms sometimes praying, oh God, that you would slay the wicked. I hate them all. They're awful and evil and horrible. There's a time and a place for that, but as we start to move through forgiveness, this is prayer that God would bless that person, would make them more aware of his presence and love in their life, right? What does Paul say in Romans 12, 14? Bless those who curse you, bless and do not curse. Bless those who persecute you, right? We are to bless these people and ask God to do the same. That's difficult. That is a difficult step to take but it is a step. Maybe that step does mean reaching out. Maybe it means sending a text or an email or calling them on the phone. Maybe it means getting together for lunch with that person. If it's like, you know, if that's, if that's the step for you, I think that that's kind of where we're called to. But regardless of how any of that works out, we need to remember the fact of the gospel in our own lives first. Remember the fact that gospel has changed you and has changed me, that Jesus has welcomed us into his arms. That's a good thing. So let's take some of these steps together. Let me pray. God, thank you for your word. 
Thank you that it challenges us, that it gives us food for thought. And not just food for thought, but spurs us to action. Lord, I pray that um, that you would guide us into your truth as we try and live this out. That you would give us the strength and the courage to walk forward in faith, knowing that you are the one who's going to ultimately establish justice and that you are the one who loves us more than we could ever hope for. Thank you for loving us. Would you accept the rest of our worship? We love you. Amen.